We're going to pick up right where we left off. 1 Samuel 19, this is God's Word to us this afternoon. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you, therefore be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in the presence, in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael left David down, let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair as its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair as its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And, Samuel went and, uh, and he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers 
and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again at the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? May the Lord bless his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the word that was proclaimed and spoke over us. We ask once again as we approach your word now this afternoon that you would attend it by your spirit. We desperately need your help. Ask that you would grant us understanding, that we would be encouraged in the faith, that even we would be encouraged in Christ this afternoon. Have your way with your people, with us this morning, this afternoon. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What's better to have, a sword or keys? Just put a pin in that. I'll answer that question later, but think about that. What is better, a sword or keys? We left off back in June with Saul going into a tailspin of sin. That one little song about David's 10,000, which Saul misunderstood, set his jealousy off to the races. First Saul kept an eye on David, and then he tried to spear him in private. Next, as you may recall, Saul did all that he could to keep David out in battle, out in the field. And then, of course, there was the bride price of 100 Philistine foreskins. With each new challenge came a new success for David, and Saul's hatred became more and more overt and more focused. Well, now, in 1 Samuel 19, Saul has finally crossed the final threshold. He goes public with his hatred, and he puts out a royal hit on David. This is a textbook example, if there ever was one, on the growth stages of sin. Brothers and sisters, if you were just to take a moment with me, think about this. Sin hatches in the dark recesses of our heart. Then it begins to crawl and and act in secrecy. And finally, sin walks out into the open, publicly wearing the big boy shoes of being right. In Saul, we witness a very human picture of the corrupting power of our own sin. 
Now, in ordering the death of David, we are not told the reason that Saul gives the order. Surely Saul has drummed up something to the effect of treason. Either way, the royal edict makes David now the enemy of the state. His life now hangs in the balance. Imagine with me, you're a servant in the royal court and and all of your fellow servants are now under orders to kill you. This is scary. And David doesn't even know about this yet. The royal edict for for this hit was, was covert enough to not alert David. Well, thankfully, David has good friends in high places. For Jonathan gets this order from his dad, and what does he do? He tells David. And as you may recall, Jonathan Jonathan has sworn loyalty and friendship and love to David. And now that loyalty is going to be put to the test. For what does it mean that Jonathan informs him? That Jonathan informs David? Well, If you really think about our text, Jonathan is aiding and abetting the enemy of the state. This makes Jonathan then the son of the king guilty of high treason. He is disobeying a direct order from his dad, the king. Jonathan is risking now at this point his own life for the life of David. If this isn't the true definition of friendship, what is? Yet Jonathan doesn't just tell David to be on his guard and go and hide in some secret place. He promises to speak to Saul on David's behalf. A king just put out a death warrant on a man, and now you are tasked with changing his mind, and you just happen to be his son. This could be risky. Yet Jonathan's intercession for David is truly a masterful little speech. First note with me how Jonathan appeals to his dad's sense of justice. Look at verse 4 with me. Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. Brothers and sisters, to kill David is to shed innocent blood. And what you wouldn't want during this time, what we wouldn't want, is blood guilt on our hands. Blood guilt is is a great temptation. It is a crime against kings in particular, because To kill whoever you want for whatever reason is certainly a temptation for kings. This is to use, brothers and sisters, the sword. This is to use the sword not in justice, but for personal advancement and security. And I want to remind you, what is the role of the regent of God? This under king, that's under the covenant of the Lord. He's to bring forth justice. 
To bring blood guilt then is, is to make him guilty before the Lord in, in, a, in a heinous way. This is a corruption of power, and Saul knows this. So Jonathan appeals to his father's better judgment. Now, there's another point here. Jonathan uses Saul's past view of David to correct his present view. Presently, Saul sees David how? As an enemy. As an enemy. But, but he didn't always believe this. He didn't think this way. Dad, Dad, David is a good servant. You know it. Remember how he risked his life for you? How he risked his life for all of Israel? He killed the giant. And through him... The Lord gave us a great salvation. You, you witnessed all of this and you rejoiced. You were happy, Dad. You were pleased with David. Nothing's changed. You, you, you shouldn't think the way you're currently thinking. Clearly, Jonathan knows what he's doing here. And he is effective. Somewhere beneath all those dark sins still Saul still has a conscience, at least for the moment. And his son, Jonathan, pricks it. Saul's eyes again see clearly. Note with me what Saul does in verse 6. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, that's an oath, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Saul makes an oath that David will not be executed. Saul invokes, as you, we just read, the name of the Lord. And he did so that David would not be put to death, but would actually live. Now, there is something about this oath that rubs us the wrong way. And that is, it comes very quickly. And Saul, Saul doesn't have a good record with, when it comes to making oaths. We know this. We've covered this in detail. The, la the last time that Saul made an oath to the Lord, it almost got Jonathan killed. And so we have to ask, will this oath, will it turn out any better? Well, it does for a little while. It does for a time. With this oath, Jonathan now reunites David and Saul. Note verse 7 with me. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence. And it says this, as before. So he's now back in the court. Think about this. Jonathan's intercession. This is beautiful. His intercession now brings Saul and David Together And now David is back into the service of Saul. It's the wisdom and courage of Jonathan that preserves peace and keeps his dad from going off the deep end. But even Jonathan's love, even his work at this intercession lasts only so long. For now we get a replay of the scene from chapter 18. It sounds almost like we're reading chapter 18. David is again playing his music 
doing this music therapy, helping Saul, and, and Saul's petting his spear, and, and yet being haunted by the harmful spirit, Saul lacks now self-control, and again, he tries to do what? He impales, or at least attempts to impale David against the wall. Now, what exactly was it that put Saul back into this episode? Well, look at verse 8. It tells us, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them, listen to this, with a great blow, so they, that they fled before him. It's David's victory in battle. It's, it's his success once again. Saul cannot stand the success of David. Listen to me. Even when it's his own success, he's the king. David is a humble servant. He gets the credit, but he can't stand it. It drives him crazy. You see, it's Saul's jealousy then that invites this harmful spirit back Again and again. Well, thankfully, Saul's accuracy with a spear is as good as a stormtrooper is with a blaster. For David once again evades him. And the scene closes with a spear vibrating against the wall. Now at this point, time becomes a player in our narrative. Note at the end of verse 10, it says that David fled when? He fled and escaped that night. You see, everything that happens in the next handful of verses will all happen in the same night, okay? So bear with me. David must have gotten away from Saul late that evening, evening, and now where does he go? He goes home to his wife, Michael. Well, Saul knows where he went. And so he dispatches his own secret police to watch over him and to kill him in the morning. David escapes Saul only now to be besieged in his own house, in his own home. Saul's moving super quick here. And in fact, no time flat, his messengers are sitting on David's house. And death will come at sunrise. David's wife, Michael, though, is moving even faster than Saul. She must have been in the know of some things that were going on at the palace, for she already knows that Saul plan, what uh, Saul plans, and, and she senses urgency here. Note what she says to David at the end of verse 11. If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Now, Michael already has an escape plan. She grabs a robe and lets David down through the window. Here, Michael saves David's life. In fact, it's remarkable how Michael is the sole instigator in these few verses. It's all, all her. Look at it. She knows about the plot. She knows about the danger. She has a solution to get David out alive. In fact, Michael is so well prepared, she probably had a sack lunch ready to go as she's putting him down the window. I wonder what yetis looked at like back in Israel during that time. 
Now, Michael doesn't just have an escape plan. She also has a delay tactic here. You see, if you're running for your life, time is on your side. You need to get a head start. And so, Michael, she dresses up a decoy, a false idol. That gives us pause. I'm just going to take out a moment. Where is she getting a false idol? We'll put a pin in that. But I do want you to be mindful there is a false god in the house of David. We'll put a pin in that. But she takes a false idol, a little goat's hair, some blankets, and now she makes it look like David is sleeping. Then when the secret place, these, the secret police, these messengers, bang on the door in the morning, she says, hey, look, David's sick. You can almost see Michael shushing him, can't you? You know, here are the messengers. She opens the door and lets them have a little peek, and they can see this little bit of hair and this idol under the pillows and under the blankets. And these messengers, what do they do? Well, they buy it. Well, the messengers go back to Saul. Saul's just too impatient. He doesn't care if David's sick. He says, bring the bed here if you have to. For David dies today. And on the second trip, well, what happens? The messengers find Michael's decoy. Michael's ruse has been found out. And I want to remind you of something. This is very serious. Think about this. The princess has just helped one labeled a traitor to the crown. This now makes her one too. Michael put her life on the line for David And now that she's found out, her end could be imminent, right? Saul was willing to kill his own son, Jonathan, if you recall. So surely he won't balk at executing a daughter. And sure enough, Saul himself now comes on the scene and he shows up. And and his question reveals clearly the charge against Michael. We can see it. Look at the first half of verse 17 with me. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? The charge of high treason and betrayal now stands against Michael. Well, she has already proven to be a master manipulator. First she dressed up a statue as David and now she makes herself to be the victim. Look at the end of verse 17. And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, this, of course, is a lie. But Michael is on the verge of execution. And yet, with this deception, Michael stays loyal to David. She doesn't give him up, nor does she disclose her love for David. In fact, Michael takes advantage of a blind spot that Saul has. For in Saul's question, we obviously see he's offended. He is really upset with his daughter. He's really surprised. Surely my own daughter would not betray me. But isn't marriage about leaving and cleaving? You leave your parents and you become one with your spouse. So why would this be such a big surprise to Saul? Well, He thinks fear is stronger than love. 
He thinks fear is stronger than love. With, with his execution order of David comes the fear of death. And this should typically ignite what? Self-love, self-defense. Surely nothing is stronger than self-love. Saul thinks this is a sure thing. With the promise of death, Saul will gain the loyalty of everyone. But he grossly miscalculated. He certainly did not think about how much Michael loved David. In fact, she loved him more than her own life. Michael knew true love. This is caring for someone more than yourself. Saul knows nothing of this. He didn't know the type of love that actually existed, this self-sacrificing love. Saul never expected Michael loving David so much. So, so when she plays the fear for her life card, he bites hook, line, and sinker. He, he believes this. Saul is left in his ignorance of the love that Michael has for David, thinking that the fear of death is invincible weapon to rule with. Unbeknownst to him, though, the powerful king walks away having been bested by the love of a woman. Well, with this interesting scene closing on Michael, the camera is going to shift and focus back onto David. Michael's delay tactics have worked. It's given David time to run all the way to Samuel, the prophet. Now, I want to remind you that a prophet is the covenant prosecutor. He is the, decl- he, he's the one that enforces the law of the Lord. He has the word of God. We should see David seeking the Lord in this time of hardship. When he runs to the prophet, he is running to the Lord. He is the one who has anointed David. God chose him as king. Now, you can only begin to imagine the painful confusion that would have been going through uh, David's mind right about now. The Lord said I would be king. He he gave me success in battle, but but now I have a price on my head? I, I mean, Saul's a good guy. I like him, but he wants to kill me. What, what did I do wrong? What happened to Saul? The questions and doubts would certainly be swirling in David's mind. I know that it would be swirling in all of ours. If you had a royal edict put out on your head and you thought your boss liked you, that would be a problem. So David seeks the Lord. He seeks the Lord through the prophet Samuel. And yet Saul has his men out on the look, and so it doesn't take too long for him to learn where David is. And then Saul does what you would expect him to do. He marshals another squad of his secret police. When you see messengers, think think secret service, think secret police, okay? And he sends these people out for David. You thought our last little scene was interesting. This gets fun. This is really interesting. Now, let's look at this together. We're going to take 20 through 24. Then Saul sent messengers to take David when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them. 
the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. Now, they are at the school of prophets. This is where they, they went, okay? So they're in, basically, they're in seminary. All right, everybody got it? Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers. So this is level two. And they also prophesied, and Saul sent messengers again the third time. And they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. As he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and laid naked all that day and night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Okay, we're going to ask our dear brother and friend, Matthew Henry, to help us through this section. Okay, he is a good friend to us. I want you to bear with me. It's a a fairly long section, but it is worth our meditation. Okay, so this is Matthew Henry, not Brent Ward. Everybody got that? All right. Quote, When the messengers came into the congregation where David was among the prophets, the Spirit of God came upon them and they prophesied, that is, listen, they joined with the rest in praising God, and I love this, instead of seizing David, they themselves were seized. And thus, we're going to have three points. One, God secured David, for either they were put in such an ecstasy by the spirit of prophecy that they could not think of anything else, and so forget their errand and never minded David, or they were by it for the present put in such a good frame that they could not entertain the thought of doing so bad a thing. That's Wonderful. Point two. He put an honor upon the sons of the prophets and the communion of the saints and showed how he can, when he pleases, strike in all upon the worst of men. Talking about the work of the Spirit here, okay? The tokens of his presence in the assemblies of the faithful and force them to acknowledge that God is uh, with them of a truth. I'm going to pause and I want, I want you to think about this. Where, will there be a future time when the unredeemed declares God? Think about it. I'm going to give you the answer. And, I, and you know it too. You ready? For every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will come a time where the Spirit will show even the unredeemed who the Lord truly is, and they will be judged for it. Number three, still looking at Matthew Henry, he says, he magnified his power over the spirits of men. 
He that made the heart and tongue can manage both to serve his own purposes. Balaam prophesied the happiness of Israel, whom he would have cursed. And some of the Jewish writers think these messengers prophesied the advancement of David to the throne of Israel. And there's a summary here. Saul himself likewise seized with the spirit of prophecy before he came to the place. One would have thought so bad a man as he was in no danger of being turned into a prophet. Yet, when God will take this way of protecting David, even Saul had no sooner come within the smell of smoke of Naoth, but he prophesied as his messengers did. He stripped off his royal robe and warlike clothing because they were either too fine or too heavy for the service and fell into a trance as it should seem or into a rapture which continued all day and night. This was amazing but not sanctifying, having a great gift yet no grace. I'm going to listen to that one more time. This is important. Having a great gift yet no grace, prophesying, yet disowned by Him. He is rejected of God and actuated by an evil spirit and yet still among the prophets, end quote. That's powerful. And I can't help but to agree with him. My point of all this is this. Here's where we're at. Often, we think of the Holy Spirit only in terms of salvation. Brothers and sisters, as a Christian, He lives in our hearts and applies the work of Christ. And the Spirit surely does this, but the work of the Spirit includes so much more. Even the punitive work over those that attack God's anointed King like those messengers of God. It's not unlike the confusing of the languages of Babel or the striking of the men of Sodom blind, so the Spirit strikes these men, listen to this, with the gift of prophecy. Listen, the Spirit can and does come upon people in judgment. After all, these secret police of Saul have orders to kill, think about this, the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's chosen king. After all this, these secret police of Saul begin to prophesy. Saul had declared David the enemy of Israel, but any enemy of God's anointed is the enemy of the triune God. And so the Spirit circles the wagons around the anointed one. And he strikes against anyone who would draw near to raise their hand against David. And what about Saul? Well, he's ticked for what does he do? Think about this with me. He tries the same thing three separate times. You would think after the Spirit drives your men to praise and prophesy that you would get a clue. At some point, he should have been given pause. I need to think about what I'm doing here. The Lord has overtaken my men. You would think he would have learned his lesson. Well, not Saul. For after the third time, he goes himself. Well, when you can't find good help, you've got to do the job yourself. Foolishly, 
Saul thinks he can su- succeed. Think about this. Think about how foolish this is. He thinks that he can succeed against the Spirit of God when other men have failed. But before Saul gets even within eyesight, the Spirit makes Saul prophesy as well. In fact, Saul keeps all this up all the way till he gets to Samuel. And by the time he reaches Samuel, he is completely out of his mind and he is stripped off his kingly garments. Saul is laying on the ground at Samuel's feet. Surely no one is going to touch the Lord's anointed. Brothers and sisters, in Saul's bowing of the knee, we see Saul fully divested of his true kingship. Saul began his kingship. Think about this with me. Saul began his kingship with the Spirit coming upon him, changing him into a new man. Now, driven by hatred against David, the Spirit again comes upon Saul, making him declare the glories of God. A Spirit first came to bless Saul, but now... In Saul's sin and in his defiance, the Spirit comes to judge Saul. Now, this is a very odd narrative, but it is beautiful. And there's some gospel here. It powerfully demonstrates the role of the Spirit in protecting the Anointed One, the Messiah of God. Think about that for a moment. Christ I want to read from a psalmist. God will command His angels to guard you in all your ways. Their hands will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Brothers and sisters, apart from the will of God, He will not let His anointed one stub His toe. And this is the protecting work of the Spirit for Jesus. We regularly say that Jesus alone, Jesus alone accomplished salvation. And and He did did it all to, to merit our redemption. But I'd like to remind you that Jesus also did it with the Spirit. Christ means anointed by the Spirit. The work of the Messiah then was performed, listen to me, in concert with the Spirit. Just as the Son came to do the will of the Father, so also He came to work with the Spirit. Key labor of the Spirit, then, was to do what? Was to protect Christ until His appointed time. How many times did the Pharisees pick up stones to kill Jesus on the spot? They set traps for Him. The priests had warrants for his arrest, but Jesus would walk away in safety every time. None of their nets could catch him in their trap. It was the Spirit. It was the Spirit that foiled all these schemes and all these murder attempts. The Spirit was the impenetrable wall around Christ, listen to me, until the appointed time. And then... Just as the Spirit led Christ into the wilderness to be tempted, the Spirit led Christ to the cross. Of course, being the righteous one, death could not hold Christ back. He purchased 
our salvation. And yet, even in the grave, the Spirit of God was working. Christ's righteousness earned the resurrection, but the Spirit brought it about. The Spirit kept God's Holy One from seeing corruption. You can go there if you want, or just take the note. We're coming to a close. Romans 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Christ was declared the Son of God in the resurrection, listen to this, according to the Spirit of holiness. You see, in the resurrection, Christ was crowned with the Spirit of the resurrection. In the ascension, Jesus received from the Father what? The promise of the Spirit. And so why? Why why is any of this important to us this afternoon? Why did Christ have the Spirit? Because with the Spirit, Christ can now apply salvation to you. With the Spirit, Christ applies this salvation to you. Christ earned your redemption, but it is the Spirit that brings it to you. It's the Spirit that that fell on... I'm back up. The Father pours out the Spirit. Where Where is He? He's at the mercy seat at the right hand of God. And the Spirit is poured out, and where does it fall? On the church as a testimony to the resurrected Christ. Christ earned your redemption, but the Spirit brings it to us, the church. Without the Spirit, Christ's salvation remains outside of us. We don't benefit from it. It's the Spirit that regenerates. He covers you in Christ's righteousness. He washes you from your sin, and He seals Christ's righteousness upon you. And it is the Spirit of Christ that is given to you, listen to me, as a down payment to your own resurrection. So what does this mean? It means that the Spirit is your protector. The Spirit is your shield. Without the Spirit of Christ, the evil one cannot do anything outside of God's providence. As the enemy comes to assail you, the Spirit will protect you. We can say it this way. In Christ, the Spirit makes you untouchable. Now, I want to I make a point clear here. This does not exclude suffering or physical death. Our Lord tells us clearly in His Word that we will suffer and we will die unless He comes. And, and so the Spirit's protection, what I'm talking about, the Spirit's protection does not eliminate hardship or suffering or persecution But He makes sure that nothing can do any ultimate damage to you. The Spirit is the Spirit of your resurrection. Which means through the Spirit, He keeps us not from death, but through death. To the bright shores of the resurrection. This means that the fear of death for us, brothers and sisters, has been declawed. With the Spirit, the keys are mightier than the sword. You see, the world can kill the body, but the Spirit keeps your soul safe in Christ. 
And with the fear of death defeated, this grants to us true love. A love greater than self-love. A love for another. So this afternoon, I want to leave you with this. Just as Christ loved us more than his own life, so the Spirit now enables us to love Christ more than our lives. To love with the same love with which we have been loved. This is the crowning blessing of our salvation. And so we we should take comfort this afternoon that in the Spirit of Christ, who is the guarantee of our resurrection, who is our sure protector, our strength to love Christ more than ourselves. As we walk by faith every single day until the Spirit brings us to resurrection and to everlasting life. And as we love Christ, we should love our brothers and sisters. May we show the love that has been shown to us. This side of heaven, it won't be perfect, but we will get to see and put on display sacrificial love for one another because of the mercy and grace that the Lord has given to us by the Spirit.